Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I traveled halfway around the world just to be still. We travel um, not just to consume places, but to be in conversation with them and be in conversation with the people there and learn from places we travel to. We travel um, not just to consume places, but to be in conversation with them and be in conversation with the people there and learn from places we travel to. There were some clips from my interview today with Rolf Potts, whose latest book is out now. It's called The Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust, Discovery, and the Art of Travel. Rolf's work has been featured in prestigious travel outlets such as National Geographic, The New Yorker, and NPR, among others. He's lectured all over the world, taught nonfiction writing courses at Penn and Yale, and hosts an annual creative writing workshop in Paris. His first book, Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel, was published in 2003, and it was influential in my life. It provided me some much-needed reassurance for my choice to pursue an unconventional life of travel at a time when... I was questioning the sanity of it. It also gave me a path forward as his book is often cited as helping to kickstart the digital nomad movement. So on top of his decades of travel experience, he has decades of experience of thinking and writing about travel and how it changes our inner and outer world, which, as you know, is a huge theme of this show. And I've been wanting to have him on the show for a while. So I'm excited to say he is here in this chat We cover a potpourri of themes from his new book, including how travel allows you to embrace the unseen parts of yourself and try on new identities, why it may be better to travel first and become a digital nomad later if you want to, the many benefits of goalless and itineraryless travel, the importance of having micro-adventures at home, the concept of psychogeography and how it can enhance your travels, a profound life lesson, a souvenir vendor taught Ralph, ideas around what it means to feel at home in a culture, some lessons Ralph learned traveling through Norway, his current favorite mode of transportation and why the joys of sharing travel with friends and family, expert tips on writing and story craft, and so much more. Plus, you'll hear one listener's biggest takeaway from one and a half years of life as a nomad and more it's happening right now in this show this very show so buckle up strap in thanks for being here and welcome to the zero to travel podcast my friend you're listening to the zero to travel podcast where we explore exciting travel-based work lifestyle and business opportunities helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams 
And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms, to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And I couldn't be more excited for this week's show and our special guest, Rolf Pot, somebody I've been wanting to have on the show for a while, his new book, The Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust, Discovery, and the Art of Travel, is out now where you can get books. And this is, quote, for readers who dream of travel, yearn to get back out on the road, or want to enrich a journey they're currently on. The Vagabond's Way explores and celebrates the life-altering essence of travel, end quote. And that's a big topic on this show and a big theme in the interview, that life-altering essence of travel, and of course, there are many nuances to that essence, as we all know, and that is why we have hundreds of episodes here. That is why Rolf has written many essays and books over decades that go deep on this topic. It's the philosophical side of travel, if you will. I call it the travel philosophy, <laughs> and there's a lot to unpack. So I'm excited to bring you this interview today. Now, one last thing before we dive into the interview. I met up with a listener last week who was in town here in Oslo, Norway. You hear me? I'm always saying, hey, if you come through town, you're listening to this show, drop me a line. I'll come meet up if we can. We, in fact, did meet up at a coffee shop here in Oslo where I live. And he started telling me his biggest takeaway from a year and a half of nomadic life. And I thought, well, hold on a second. I'm not prepared to record or any of this. So I bust out my smartphone and I had to record his biggest takeaway because I thought it was a great one. And to share it with you, it may be something that encourages you to come here for a visit as well. So I'll leave you with that hint. And I'm going to leave you with a quote at the end of the show as well to wrap this all up in a nice bow. So stick around for all that on the back end. In the meantime, please enjoy this Wonderful chat with Rolf Potts. If you want to learn more about his work, you can go to rolfpotts.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side. Rolf Potts, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, man. I've been waiting to say that for a while. (laughs) It's good to talk to you, Jason. Likewise. I did catch wind that you were in Norway pretty recently when we were trading emails. And I just wanted to hear some of your impressions from Norway because I went on your Instagram and saw some of the things you guys did. Obviously, that's just a little bit of a snapshot of what you've done. But tell me about your thoughts on Norway. First time here, right? Yeah. Part of the fun of talking to you right now is that I, I can sort of, I can relive Norway. It was my first time there. And I've said, you know, I started out as just a dirtbag backpacker, which I love traveling to cheap countries. Uh, and so for years, I, I always wanted to go to Norway. When I was young, I would watch Norway on the Winter Olympics. They would always destroy everybody. This tiny little country would destroy everyone in the Winter Olympics. And I dreamed of going there. But it's like when I was in my late 20s, I could spend several months in India or Thailand for you know the time of a week in Norway. So I just never went and I never went. And then I married a woman with Norwegian cousins. And I went there this summer and it was so delightful, uh, in part because we were sort of hosted, and you may have a similar experience having married into Norway yourself. Um, 
that basically instead of taking my guidebook and, and going around Norway, um, I can actually show you the on the actual Zencaster the, the guidebook here. And my buddy wrote that guidebook actually. He lives yeah, here. Yeah, no. <laughs> but it was because we were being hosted by my wife's cousins, we we're going to all these places that weren't in the guidebook. Um and I think what is delightful about that is not just sort of the the one downsmanship that can happen when you're not going to the guidebook places, <laughs> but the fact that we're going to places that the my wife's Norwegian cousins loved, right? And so we were we were going to places that they just were special to them because they grew up around them, and we spent a lot of time in cabins. Uh, we, we a lot of spent a lot of time going to little local attractions uh, like Finskogen. I don't know if you've been up to the Finskogen area, um, sort of northeast of Sormsand. It's it's um it's an area where the the Finns settled like 400 years ago, and they sort of have this uh, this old Finnish Norwegian culture, uh, and it straddles the border between Norway and Sweden. Uh, and it, it, it allows you to hike into Sweden from Norway through these old Finnish cabins uh, where people wore birch bark shoes hundreds of years ago. Then just, you know, again, with my wife's family, which is great. You know, I've been traveling the world for a long time, but it's, it's, I don't have any family connections to, to, the, to the motherland, to any of my ancestors who live in other countries. And so it was really fun to be hosted by people who just wanted to show me their home. Uh, and so my window into Norway hasn't included things like fjords where most people go first, right? It's just these these cool little south central Norway cabin forest areas that I thought were delightful. And you probably have some experience in yourself. Yeah, for sure. My wife is from Inlanda, which is around the area you were in partially anyway, because you went to Femund's Marka National Park as well, I think, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, the, we went to the lake up there. We we, we were near Ruros. We, we were a little bit south of Ruros. So we didn't go into Ruros. But uh, yeah, it's a, even though it's not necessarily a guidebook part of Norway, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. Well, of course, we're a little biased because my, my in-laws are from there and I've explored that area quite a bit. But we both feel that it's like a little hidden gem there. It's a little bit of undiscovered... Uh, undiscovered part of Norway. Yeah. The cabin culture here is huge, man. Like it's, it's cool that you just got to spend time in a cat in sort of cabins and out in nature. That's the whole thing about Norway's free loofs leave, like the outdoor life, right? Spending time outdoors and, and you know, it's pouring rain today and it's cold. And I guarantee my kids are outside playing somewhere because that's just what they do. Like they just go out in all weather. <laughs> Which is such a virtuous Norwegian thing. And I write about free loose leave in my new book, The Vagabond's Way, in that their response to these depressingly long winters, as you know, is just to go outside. And in, in a time when most people would hover by the fire, their attitude is, we're just going to go outside anyway. And uh, and so one great thing about being a Norwegian kid, and it sounds like your your kids are embracing it, are spending is spending a lot of time outside because that's just the cultural norm. And I, I think that there's a there's an extent to which this cabin culture is part of urbanization. You know, there's a lot of people have family cabins that used to just be the family home or the old fishing cabin, and now they fix up these old family homes where they spend the weekend and. Some of my wife's relatives have a couple of cabins, like from each side of the family, they have their old their old cabin in, in the woods. And it's just delightfully relaxing and beautiful. And you can walk and pick berries. It's it's almost like a cliche. You know, it's it's like this dream of Norway where you're just sort of walking through the forest and picking cloudberries and picking raspberries because they're everywhere. Uh and 
it took me 50 years to get to Norway, uh, but I finally <laughs> did and it was delightful. Yeah, it is idyllic in some ways, you know, because we have a whole bunch of blueberries that grow in the forest right outside of our house. And we live, you know, outside of Oslo, like we have an Oslo address. It is kind of funny to think. Yeah, I mean, I still feel that kind of traveler buzz like that. Oh, I'm picking blueberries in Norway and I live here and it's nice. Yeah, you mentioned the cultural norm. I think that there is something to like the baseline cultural norm when when that involves like nature or something positive, or I should say something that resonates with you as an individual, right? I feel like that that kind of connects you to a culture in a different way. I always valued nature. So coming here and being in a society where they you know have such a high value on nature, it kind of I'm just thinking out loud, but I guess maybe that's one reason that was the part of me that probably felt most at home here, you know? I think I never appreciated sort of my outdoor walking self as much. I sort of rediscovered a part of myself when I went to Norway because it's just such a normal thing. It's just what people do. Um, and in the book, I talk like in Japan, they have what's called forest bathing. I forget the Japanese word for it, but basically you walk in and you bathe in the forest. Just um, like and <laughs> brush yeah, exactly. the air on you. <laughs> you, you, you just sort of inhale this you know, wild area, it's sort of a mental health thing, not to get too technical about it, but I think it's really good for your soul, if not your mental health, to just get out and walk around and and just sort of, I've, I've used the phrase for years now, walk until your days becomes interesting. And I often use that in the context of traveling in cities, you know, where you can sort of walk off the obvious tourist trail by just sort of walking and sort of following your interests. But in a, in a wild or rural setting, uh, it's fantastic because, Without setting a goal necessarily, you can just sort of walk and find the blueberries or, you know, sit, sit in a beam of sun and, and just sort of enjoy uh, the slow pace of life and just sort of pay attention. You know, that's a, it's a great travel virtue to sort of enjoy a moment and pay attention. And one thing that I found delightful about Norway is just there's, there's no pressure. There's no – in cabin culture, there's no rush to necessarily do anything. But you just you let a day be. You might go swimming. You might go hiking. You might look for berries. You'll hang out with with your with your Norwegian family and and catch up. And I, I found it was wonderful that um, I traveled halfway around the world just to be still for a while. It was yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I come from the East Coast. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and you know that's like the fast paced sort of American. It helps to be put into that i think sometimes at least for me i was like oh, okay they're like teaching me how to relax a little, <laughs> a little bit more not be like fam we got to get this done <laughs> not to slam american culture too much but sometimes we over schedule even our leisure time you know we, we sort of have this hyper programmed micromanaged approach even to our leisure time uh and so one thing that travel reminds me again and again and especially in Norway is that you can let your leisure time be a leisure time. You can do nothing more than just sort of enjoy your free let's leave time in the forest. Um and I guess so for def- you was it was it kind of rejuvenating in that way? You mentioned kind of mental health and things like that. Was that was part of the trip for you uh kind of that? It was it, it was partly rejuvenating because it was my first post-pandemic international journey. I went to Paris where I teach a class every summer and Norway and then the Faroe Islands after Norway. And so in addition to the things that I sort of accidentally discovered by wandering around the forest with my wife's family in Norway, um, it was just nice to be back out on the road and, and just sort of have that rhythm. I mean, 
I was a lucky guy during the pandemic. I met my wife during the pandemic, but oh, you did? Um, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but sort of being back in that rhythm and, and sort of that perspective, even though I enjoyed as one, I relatively enjoyed my home because I had a fairly positive pandemic and I went for long walks here, but that perspective you get from being in another place and sort of the perspective that being in Paris gives you on food and how slow meals are in a place like Paris. The perspective Norway gives you on being outside and how being outside is just this virtue, even if you live in the city as a Norwegian. Um, and then then in the Faroe Islands, it was sort of a combination of both, of, of just sort of wandering through a landscape. Of course, there's no trees in the Faroe Islands. It's, it's a very dramatic and beautiful landscape, but just um, being focused on attention to the moment was, it was, it was delight. I've been talking about travel for a long time, but uh, my Europe travels this summer was real, a real reminder of what I enjoy about travel. And sometimes it's not those bulletless things. It's just that simple awareness and attention to the moment that travel reminds you of how special life can be. It's the best, right? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, I mean, there's a ton of wisdom in your book. So I'm, I have a sort of format. I want to kind of pick through some of that with you. Sure. How did you meet your wife during the pandemic? I have to ask. How did that go? Uh, a dating app, you know. It, yeah. It's funny. An old-fashioned uh, dating app. Can you say that now? <laughs> right. It's like the 21st century version of a matchmaker, I guess. You know, uh, fiddler on the roof. No, I, I, I was sort of sardonic about dating apps when I started using them, but I met my person. I met my soulmate on a dating app, so I'm not going to complain about them anymore. Um, and it's it's funny that she's a Kansas girl. I'm from Kansas. Um, I've had a very international life. She's had a very international life. She's lived overseas in places like London and Berlin. Um, and we wouldn't have met, even though we grew up within an hour of each other. Um, we probably wouldn't have met had this smartphone app not connected us across 80 miles of Kansas Prairie during a pandemic when we were both back in our home state to be close to our parents. And so, yeah, it's a, I lucked out. That is crazy. How did you propose? I always like to hear the proposal story. Was well, it dramatic? <laughs> well, I was I was the world's oldest bachelor. And so I was pushing 50. And I didn't want to turn 50 without having proposed to her. I'd known her for about five months by this time. And so I, and she's not an early riser. Uh, and so I said, we need to get up at five in the morning so I can ask you to marry me. And so... <laughs> Um, so we got up at five and we were sort of bleary eyed. I had a lantern going. It was completely dark. I walked down to the little cottonwood grove here on my property in Kansas and I quoted Walt Whitman. I, I said, uh, um, Kiki, Kiki's her name. Her, her real name is Kristen, but I call her Kiki because my sister's name is Kristen. Uh, I give you my, I give you my hand. I give you my uh, love more precious than money. Will you travel with me? Shall we stick together as long as we live? Which is totally plagiarizing Walt Whitman. But I think since I read that poem for the first time, I knew that's how I would ask somebody to marry me. And it turned out to be Kiki. And that's, uh, and that's how we um, started the next chapter in our lives. So we got married a, a year to the day after we met. It was also a pandemic, and so we again walked back down to the to the cottonwoods with thirteen other people, uh, mostly close family, and we've been married ever since. It's been great. Beautiful man, that that story gave me chills. I love that you're this award winning writer, and you still 
quoted Walt Whitman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna pull something from. A <laughs> well, I, I couldn't have done timeless better, right? wisdom here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I was. It, it just that just moved me. Song of the Open Road by Walt Whitman moved me years ago when I before I was a traveler, um, and it sort of showed me the future that I wanted to live and finding my life partner is is included so it it was silly to make up a junior varsity version version of what Walt Whitman already said <laughs> I'm sure you didn't hit the snooze button that morning right, right. No. no maybe we'll sleep in a little bit <laughs> <laughs> who are some other authors or creators or really artists anybody that have that move you well there's a lot and um the new, my new book, The Vagabond's Way, is, is just full of, of, of quotes and, and reflections on 3,000 years of, of travel literature um, from around the world. Um, I mean, I also quoted William Carlos Williams, um, I think, during our wedding vows. He's not necessarily a travel guy, but he sort of talks about, you know, we, we didn't get married in our 20s. We got married in our 40s. I was had actually just turned 50. And so there's that idea of, of old love, you know, um, we will it so and so it is past all accident. You know, that's a that's a, a, a William Carlos Williams quote. Um, as far as travel goes, there, there's so many travel thinkers. You know, from from John Muir to uh, Matsuo Basho, uh, the great Japanese walker, years ago, um, that you read and you just understand that they get it. You know, you just understand that they were doing something right. Uh, I know that John Muir years ago. People don't know this about John Muir. They think of him as this guy who just sort of wandered the wilderness in California for for months at a time. He made a lot of money growing grapes and exporting them to Hawaii. And he just made the decision to take the money he'd earned and live the life that he wanted to live. And uh, someone asked him about some magnet named E.H. Uh, e. Harriman, I think. And it's like, well, he's making more money than you. What do you think of that? And he's like, no, 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 no. Um, I have all the money I want and he doesn't. So I'm richer than he is, right? So he had made enough money to live the life he wanted to live, which is walking in wilderness. Whereas this um, iron magnet or railroad magnet was still trying to make money and not enjoying the wealth that he had accumulated. And so you're in conversation with these people who wrote before and it's just like, these guys figured something out. So the new book is full of reflections on these people um, from all corners of the world um, who it feels like understood something about how travel can make your world bigger. Uh, and so the new book is very much in conversation with so many writers from generations prior. And now you've contributed to to that legacy, right? I mean, it's, with this book, and I'm excited to dive into it. I think the story you just told is a good example of the importance of mindset. I always think like when we talk about mindset, it becomes so cliche. People are just like, oh, you know, mindsets. It's all about your mindset and all it's just like whatever, another freaking platitude, you know. And but then when you when you think about those two individuals, John Muir and his uh, counterpart there, it was a mindset thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? That, it's a that's why I remember John Muir, you know. We don't remember most of the millionaires from the 19th century, but John Muir um um, he had many gifts, but one of them was realizing that how much money was enough, you know, that he wasn't rich until he knew how much money would allow him to to live the life he had. And I think part of what I focus on this new book is mindset. And my first book, Vagabonding, is also the same way that I think the travel industry teaches us to understandably find ways to, to have deals and make bucket lists of places we want to go and and 
have the point A to point B itinerary stuff. But I think what, t- what sometimes it doesn't remind us of is the mindset that makes travel possible. It's this idea that the travel is not just a consumer act that we buy in the same manner we would buy sneakers, you know, but it's actually this thing that can touch every part of our being. And so the Vagabond's Way, like Vagabond in my first book, are very much about the attitude you take to travel and how it doesn't just, that attitude doesn't just allow you to travel no matter how much money you make, but it also allows you to travel in a way that you're in conversation with the places you travel to, as opposed to just sort of finding the right backdrop to take a picture in front of or finding the next tick off your bucket list. Not to knock bucket lists, but sometimes I think bucket lists are the it's the excuse to get you out the door. What, what's on your bucket list matters less than what you do when you get to the bucket list place because you're always 100 times smarter after a few days in the new place than you were sitting at your desk making your bucket list, right? So, Right. How much of that attitude you just described do you carry around with you at home when, when you're home for an extended period of time? Well, I try to. I, I think it's harder sometimes to be to pay attention and to be open hearted to your environments when you're at home because habits and other understandable things sort of put you back into a mindset that might be at odds with travel. And so the whole last part of, of my new book is about taking the attitude of travel home. And it's easier said than done, I think. Um but I, I've given a lot of travel advice over the years. But if you come and if you observe me on a Rolf cam at home in Kansas for 24 hours, I might not always have that travel attitude. I think being away from home allows you to take the novelty of a new place and, and it allows you to pay attention and, and sort of be engaged in a way you can't be at home. Um, but, I, but I try my best. Um, and, you know, actually my wife and I, uh, every day when the day starts, um, it's, it's earlier than you in Norway right now. So she hasn't woken up yet, but, uh, we sit out on, on the deck and we read to each other, um, which is almost sort of, uh, sort of in the old devotional, um, way only we will read poetry or, um, other thinkers or philosophers just to remind ourselves to pay attention. And I don't think anybody is perfect at home and we all have work and we all have routines and we have distractions, but, um, I think sort of reminding yourself that um, that life is precious and each day is special is a good thing to do. And uh, it's weird, isn't it? That sometimes it's harder to do at home than, than, than on the road. Yeah. I, I mean, I need that as well. I have a small, it's called wisdom of the East. It's just a small calendar and it has a different little thing every day. And it's just a small way to kind of set the tone for the day. But you're right. You know, the other week, a buddy of mine runs a tour company here and I went on one of their bike tours. I got invited like, come on a bike tour as a bike tour of uh, the city of Oslo. My buddy's a guide. So I'm like, yeah, that sounds cool. And it was awesome just to go out into the city I live in and see it from that perspective. And he gave a great tour and everything. And it just kind of it felt like I got that travel feeling right and in my own home city. And it just felt so good to yeah, remind myself that, whoa, there's there's a lot I don't know still. Obviously, I know that, but just, you know, it's like a visceral reminder. I don't, there's like all kinds of parts of the city that I still need to explore. And it just kind of opened up the city for me again, I think, in some way. Like, kind of pushed me out of the routines, you know? Yeah, well, I think con- different conveyances help. I mean, walking in your town, into a new neighborhood, taking a bike, that's great. Actually, public transport is great. Um when when my wife and I took the train from the airport north of Oslo up up into the area 
the province where Ruderos is. Um, we were on a Norwegian train, but it was it was sort of different than than other trains. You know, the, the there was no place to sit. There'd been a train strike, and so we were standing. But like the conductor kept an eye on us, and she came in and she made sure that when a seat opened up, we knew where it was. And it felt like just by being in the train, we were in a special part of this. Norwegian way of looking out for each other, which was fun. And so that could be an excuse. I should do that. I should get a bike here. Actually, I talk about this in the book too, the idea of micro adventures, you know, that if you can't travel around the world, we'll sleep in your backyard or, or walk to the next town over or go to a pub on the other side of town and, and chat up strangers in the way you would in a, in a pub, you know, on the other side of the world. So I love it that your bike tour sort of allowed you to be, to pay attention to Oslo in a way you might not have otherwise. Yeah. That was it. Paying attention. Alistair Humphreys, shout out to Alistair Humphreys. Yeah, too, the great, He's a great guy. Friend and, of the show. Yeah, yeah, awesome guy. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by US Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now let's get back to the show. You know, something that surprised me when I was reading about your work and kind of diving into this is, is the book you wrote about the ghetto boys. Hmm. Yeah. Are Nobody you ever asked are you, me about that? Because I'm an old school hip hop. Like we're pretty close to the same age. And and I grew up during the golden age of hip hop. And so I'm a I'm a super fan of all all of those bands that I grew up with. I was just wondering, yeah, how did that come to be? And are you a fan? Uh, did you grow up with that or yeah? 
Yeah, no, it's great. Nobody ever asked me that. I, and sometimes I'm, I'm at book events and all my books will be stacked in front of me and nobody will even pick up the Ghetto Boys one. I would have I would have like <laughs> bought the Ghetto Boys book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm Actually, I should say I'm going to buy the Ghetto Boys book after I found it. It's like it's next on my read list. <laughs> yeah. No, in a weird way, it's a travel book because it's sort of about the psychogeography of, of gangster rap. It's the, And psychogeography is how you, you get this way you play games with a place to see it in a new way. And when I was young, um, I didn't grow up a Ghetto Boys fan. The Ghetto Boys, just so your audience knows, they're, they're a very offensive um, gangster rap group from Houston in the 80s and 90s. And they were intentionally in, 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 offensive because that's how they got people to pay attention to them, like on purpose. It, they, they sort of, rap was an entertainment for them. And it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was sometimes scary and it was sometimes offensive, but it was somehow fascinating at the same time. And so when I had my first vagabonding trip at age 23 and I was living in a van. I didn't want to go to Johnson Space Center in, in, in Houston. I wanted to go to Fifth Ward where the Ghetto Boys were from. Um, and so I did. And so, so the book sort of touches on how when you realize that NWA is not just from Los Angeles, they're from Compton. When you realize that the Ghetto Boys are not just from Houston, they're from Fifth Ward, they're from very specific neighborhoods, then it allows you to see that place in a new way. And um, I guess, you know, the blues as a form of music was in, in a certain sense about the migration of, of black people from the South to the North and sort of the loneliness of, of leaving a place they knew for a place they didn't know quite as well. Well, gangster rap was sort of about being stuck in one place, about being, being poor in America at a certain time. And so the genius of the Ghetto Boys and a group like NWA is instead of complaining about being in the poorest part of town, they celebrated it, you know, that there's a celebration of Fifth Ward or Compton. And so me as a fairly middle-class white guy, um, I thought, I want to see Fifth Ward. And so I did. And so my Ghetto Boys book is sort of a history of the Ghetto Boys and, and how their Rick Rubin produced album uh, came about. Because Rick Rubin is famous. He produced Johnny Cash. He produced oh, yeah. Slayer. He I'm, produced- a, I'm a big Rick Rubin fan. <laughs> Rick, Rick Rubin is great. And he's he's sort of a hero to me in a certain sense. But he chose he chose to produce this regional, and I can appreciate it as a Kansas guy, I appreciated that here's this group from the middle of the country that was suddenly making noise and being and 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 making a reputation for themselves, um, and it got the attention of Rick Rubin. And so, it, I, so the book is sort of about why I was paying attention to them, why I sought out that part of Houston, and how that album came about. Um, and it and it's sort of a it's almost a forgotten album. Um, the Ghetto Boys are remembered by people like you and me, um, but they probably will never have their biopic like NWA did. But it just really fascinated me that I was allowed to see a part of Houston um, that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And when I went there, there's actually, um, there's horse riding clubs in Fifth Ward and Trinity Gardens. There's parts of Houston where um, the black folks that live there, they they ride horses. You know, it's, it's a Southern culture. And it was so weird to be in an urban part of America and to see people riding horses like like we were in Wyoming or something. And so, yeah, I could, I could actually babble about the Ghetto Boys for a long time, but it very much was, it wasn't just a history of a certain Ghetto Boys album, but it was the, the psychogeography and how that vernacular of rap music sort of compelled people to pay attention to parts of America that we would otherwise ignore. Another interesting way to kind of explore a new area in your travels, right? Like find something that, that resonates with you. And, and explore it. And it's all, totally off the beaten path, right? It, like you said, it's not something that people that are going to Houston think about. I'm going to, you know, 
drive my van down there and see. But I mean, obviously the interest is there then. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that is, it, it, it's there, you know, that yeah, exactly. regardless of whether or not you go there, that those parts of the cities are there. And obviously some, some parts of some cities around the world, not just the United States are dangerous. Um, but why, I guess we have top 10 lists and guidebooks that take us to certain areas, but why not follow, have a different metric for what makes you decide to go to a place? Like if you feel like a certain sport is going to take you to a certain part of the world or a certain part of a city, if you like a certain kind of food or basically following your hobbies or your interests will allow you to see parts of the world that you wouldn't normally see. And so in this weird way, I, I was never a giant gangster rap fan, but that album caught my imagination in such a way that I, when I was 23, I, I couldn't go to Houston without at least seeing what, what Fifth Ward was like. And very few people go to Fifth Ward when they go to Houston, but I did. And it was, it was fascinating. And so psychogeography doesn't just have to be about following gangster rap or music to towns, but it's about finding a, a different way to play games with the travel experience and to see places that haven't been prepared for your consumption as a tourist. Um, and it's a great, it's a great way to approach a place. Um, I mean, under the rules of psychic geography, you can flip a coin in an intersection and, and turn left is, is heads and turn right is tails. I mean, it's, um, the, the psychogeographical ge strategies are endless. It's just a way of, of jarring you out of what would have been your normal routine as a traveler and forcing you to pay attention to parts of a place that you wouldn't have paid attention to otherwise. Is a music a big part of your life overall? Not since I was young. Um, no. and, and while I was a fan of the Ghetto Boys, I was more of a grunge boy. So um, in my early 20s, I... I was in many Pearl mosh Jam. pits. <laughs> totally. Actually, I never saw Pearl Jam live. I saw Nirvana live in like the King Theater in Seattle back in the day. I saw Elliot Smith, you know, in in in, in front uh, of twenty people that, when he I was in a, loved, uh, He was in a band called Heat Miser, um, which is from Portland, Oregon, which is near where I lived when I went to college. And so I stood two feet away from Elliot Smith without really knowing who he was. This is before his solo work. Uh, yeah, so music was huge for me. Uh, and so that year that I was um, living in a van and traveling around America and visiting uh, Fifth Ward Houston, I also went to Lollapalooza twice. I went to a lot of live music, but that was more specific to that certain part of my life. I, I love music, but I'm not as obsessed with it as I was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. What was van life like before van life? This was before hashtag van life, right? right. Like this yeah. is, <laughs> I think I there know. was a lot more skepticism around people living in vans back then. Yeah, no, well, it was sort of a hippie thing. It was, it was generationally, I guess when I was a kid, there was a lot of baby boomer travelers who had sort of done the VW bus thing. Um, and then their kids, the millennials sort of had hashtag van life and, uh, there was no conversation about van life. I just wanted a cheap way to travel around North America for a while. And so a friend and I kitted out at a 1985 Volkswagen Vanagon, and we just lived so cheap. We had a lot of ramen. Uh, we slept in a lot of parking lots. Um, we, we were just out of college. So oftentimes we'd find the local college and go to the sports facility to shower, um, or, you know, go to a local motel and jump in the swimming pool. Um, and we, we just sort of made it happen. So it's interesting how a culture has has built itself around this. And we were so dirtbag compared compared to the van life you see on hashtag van life. There's some people doing some really creative and imaginative things with their vans and conveyances. We just wanted to travel cheap. And so we just lived in this 
van where we take out a couple seats and put in a fold out bed. And it enabled us to travel North America for eight months on about five grand in 1994. Um, and I'll never be able to con compete with that trip. You know, I've been around the world. I've been to six continents. I've seen a lot of places, but it's hard. You can only travel once when you're 23 year old, 23 years old for the first time. And so that's really when I fell in love with long-term travel. It's when I realized it didn't have to, it was cheaper and easier and safer than I thought it would be. And in, in a certain sense, I'm still on that van trip. I don't even know where that van is. It's probably in a junkyard by now, but that we, you know, we were talking about attitude and, and um, mindset. That's the trip that taught me that mindset and attitude are the most important thing, more so than budgets and itineraries and top 10 lists. That made me realize that if you have the right attitude and the right mindset, you can find ways to do it. If you can be patient and go slow, you can find ways to do it. Um, yeah, I'm still sentimental about that, about that first fan trip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. For you, just getting on the road with that trip, were there any things to overcome in terms of your own mindset? Like, did you have a somebody you know who had done that before? Or was this just like a totally out of the blue kind of thing? And you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I'm just going to do this thing and see what happens. Or what, what was that trip? Like, I guess leading up to that trip, what did, what did kind of your life look like? And how did you make the decision to go on that trip? And was it, were there any obstacles kind of to overcome in that way? Well, the obstacles, I, I thought that this was this bold, daring thing um, because there was no van life conversation going on. My parents are great parents, um, but they didn't have passports. They didn't travel a lot. They they didn't have, they weren't car campers necessarily. My friend who I traveled with, he he had a couple uncles who sort of motorcycled around America, easy rider style. Um, th there was no, I, there was an internet. I didn't use it back in 1993, 94. Um, but it was more problem solving um, in that, like I just, I had sort of subscribed to that American idea that you work hard your whole life and then you retire and you have free time to travel. Um, but I grew up in Kansas. I didn't know a lot of travelers. My, one of my favorite people was my grandfather, who was a farmer who quit school in eighth grade to start farming. And when he had finally reached his retirement age, his wife, my grandmother, had Alzheimer's disease. He didn't have the freedom to travel. He, Not that he necessarily dreamed to travel. He didn't have the freedom to just sort of live a leisured life. He had to take care of his wife. Um, and so it was sort of heartbreaking for me. I didn't want to be the guy who didn't have free time when society told him he was he deserved it. And so it felt transgressive to me. There was nobody around me. I couldn't go online and see people doing these trips. I had to create my own. And so my friend Jeff had these, these hippie uncles who'd done it. And so we just did some troubleshooting. We went to the hardware store. We, we kitted out our own van and we just did it. And so that, that mindset, I think it's easier now to give yourself permission um, to travel. And a lot of, a lot of what I write about in Vagabonding and the Vagabond's Way is, is about permission and about realizing that if you want to travel, find ways to make it happen now. And if not now, find ways to make it happen in the next year or two, because life doesn't necessarily reward you with free time from virtue. And so I think that was my big lesson that, that, um, um, because I was trying to scratch a travel itch while I was young, because I wasn't sure if I would have the time to do it when I was old, in trying to scratch that travel itch, I realized I didn't have to scratch it. I could I could sort of blend travel with my life in ways um, that enriched my life. And so it's funny. I've come full circle back to Kansas. I have a home here. I met my wife here. Yet I travel, you know, when I can, many months a year. Um, and 
I can't see myself having lived any other way, but when I was a young man, I didn't see myself doing it at all. So that's really, that was the, the, the great lesson I learned from that trip that I could give myself permission. I could interweave travel with my life, not as something that's separate as this category that's an escape from your life, but sort of an escape into your life and a part of your life. Um, yeah. And I'll be forever grateful for that first trip for allowing me to see that. And and special thanks to the two hippie uncles as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Paul and Mark Neenaber, wherever you are. <laughs> the idea of giving yourself permission, I was wondering if... Well, let me start with the life of travel thing, because I, was that an immediate realization for you? I mean, now you've built your whole career in your, in your life around travel, which I imagine is one of your greatest passions, I'm guessing. You know, I mean, I get to have this conversation with you right now, and this is my job. I'm using air quotes, and we all know that every job comes with struggles and things like that, but it's still pretty incredible when I was coming into this conversation with you. I was thinking, wow, this is, I'm so lucky that I get to just do this, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be around travel and and talk about it and yeah, just be around it. And uh, it's just the gratitude just went through the roof for me this morning, and I, I was thinking about that, and I was I was just thinking about your journey and wondering if, you know, or that early on, you kind of had the epiphany where you're like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to, I'm just going to make travel my life. Or, or if it was more of like an organic kind of journey where you started doing projects and things. Yeah. Just, yeah. How did that happen for you? Well, I think it tied into the fact that I was a travel writer and the travel writing world looks a lot different than it did 20, 25 years ago when I first got into it. Because um, I dreamed of writing for glossy magazines that don't exist anymore. Um, and then um, because my travel philosophy was sort of fueled by John Muir and Walt Whitman and Annie Dillard rather than, you know, travel guidebooks, because it was sort of a philosophical approach to living my best life, um, it was sort of it was sort of inbaked to what I was writing about and what I was pursuing as a traveler. Um, and... Yeah, I, I love that you use the G word, gratitude. You know, I try to remind myself of that gratitude. I think there's sacrifices that you make, you know, um, that I, I I never lived in a big city in a fashionable neighborhood. Uh, and, and until recently, I thought I might be a bachelor my whole life. I wasn't sure. I feel I, luck, I lucked out and met my, met my soulmate here on the prairie during the pandemic. But yeah, yeah, no, I think in a certain sense, when I went out of my 20s and into my 30s, I was really embroiled in travel writing. I was really fixated with it. I felt I really felt lucky and and and, and uh, grateful that I was able to be a travel writer for a living, which seemed very exotic to this Kansas boy at the time. Um, and then, sort of once once travel writing in that old glossy magazine sense became less possible, you know, my career delved into other things, and I'm still sort of living. Those principles that allowed travel possible, like simplicity um, and maybe living in a place that's less expensive than a, than a more expensive place and sort of seeing time as my greatest form of wealth rather than possessions. Uh, yeah. And so I, I don't think I can really tease apart travel and the life that I've been living since my late 20s, early 30s. Um, I don't really have an objective uh, lens on my own life because it's just it's sort of dovetailed in ways that are still surprising me. This is long lines of sort of giving yourself permission because I, I do think this is a huge concept. Let's say mindset because we've used the term right already. 
getting past the platitude of mindset, it, it, it is huge, right? To give yourself permission to either travel the world or to say, I can be a travel writer or to say, I can start my own business. You know, there's an element of uh, struggle within that I feel like needs to be overcome by, I would say, most people, common term being imposter syndrome, I guess. I'm wondering if that's, if you ever struggled with giving yourself permission, do you still struggle with imposter syndrome at all? Uh, any advice around that for anybody listening that is maybe kind of dealing with that or has dealt with that? Well, I think maybe just realizing that how simple that permission is. I think travel has been pegged to status since the aristocratic days of the of the 18th and 19th century that that travel was what wealthy people did you know as conspicuous consumption it's like i can do this and so to this day to this day oftentimes our fear of travel is tied into this notion that it's really expensive or that it's something that you buy rather than give to yourself and so i think the wrong way to approach status is that oh i'm going to impress my i'm going to travel the world and impress my friends you know, well Actually, why don't you just travel the world and change your life? You know, um, I, I think one thing um, that has happened in the 20, 25 years since I started doing this is, is social media has sort of taken that glossy ma magazine ethos and personalized it in a way that we're sort of performing our travels. And I, I, um, I try not to bash social media in the new book, but I, I sort of encourage people to be uh, cognizant of how technology and social media can can sell your travel, sh travel short because oftentimes we are still playing that status ritual of travel. We're sort of performing for our, ca our, our camera the type of travel that is less important than the travel that touches our heart. You know, like posing on that beach or on that mountain for Instagram is fine, but, you know, most of us know that we're sort of making a fictional portrait of that beach, you know, with fewer people. And there's a bunch of people in line also going to take that photo for Instagram. That's fine. But if that's where your travel begins and ends, if it's about status, if it's about creating a story about your wonderful life to people you don't necessarily know, well, that's maybe not as important as, you know, waking up from a nap on the hammock in a forest in, in, in Norway or other, these other moments where travel can really, there's a lot of t points in the new book and vagabonding too, where I sort of, it turns the corner into the spiritual aspects of travel, that you're really, you're paying attention in a way that benefits your whole self, that you're not thinking about the abstract audience of social media, or even the abstract audience of your friends and, and family back home. Um, although, you know, it's good to stay in touch with them too, but really paying attention and really being where you are and really enjoying this moment, because that's what life is. Life is the moment we have right now. Um, and if we're too wrapped up in the ideas of how this is going to look to people back home, if we're still worried about that old status ritual of travel that doesn't, that we don't need to play, um, then we're going to be selling our travels short a little bit. What does spirituality mean to you? Well, I guess sometimes spirituality, um, Sometimes it's it's hitched to religion. Sometimes it's teased apart from religion to the point that saying I'm spiritual but I'm not religious is sort of a cliche, right? Uh, but spirituality is just is paying attention to life. I think, um, uh, and and travel is a way to do that. But I was saying how my wife and I read to each other, or we try to on the deck every morning. We've been reading Mary Oliver poems. I don't know if you read much Mary Oliver, but there's so much about nature in her poems, and that sometimes uh, looking at birds can make you 
pay attention to the world and to life uh, in a way that is spiritual. Uh, and so not to sound woo-woo about things, one danger of talking about spirituality is sounding woo-woo. I think it's about paying attention to life and, and, and practicing gratitude and, and practicing uh, community and love for each other and, and um, sort of understanding the context of the world in which we live and making the most out of every moment that we have in life. Uh, as impossible as that is, sometimes, I, I think I quote Annie Dillard um, in, uh, in Vagabonding, maybe also in Va The Vagabond's Way, where I, she says that beauty and grace are performed whether or not we notice. The least we can do is try to pay attention, or at least, at least we can tr do is try and be there. And so I think that that spiritual process is, is a matter of attention and a matter of making sure that we are living a good life. And that doesn't necessarily mean a conspicuous consumption life, but just sort of a, a life for which we are grateful um, because time is what we're given. Yeah. The Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust Discovery and the Art of Travel. Amazing title. I love the way the book's laid out. You know, on Penguin Random House, on, on the website, your publisher, it's, it's filed under philosophy and personal growth. Not, hmm. Travel isn't even a word there. <laughs> you know, I, I noticed that. I noticed that. And I mean, they're the, they, they're, they're the, they, they have the algorithms and I, I, that was made for a reason. But actually that's, that's almost a compliment, you know, because in a sense, I'm, I don't mean to compete with guidebooks or other practical travel books, but I want to use travel as a lens for, you know, spiritual growth and self-improvement and philosophical uh, realization, uh, because that's sort of a part of the travel conversation that is under-examined, I think, that we often talk about traveling consumer terms more than philosophical terms, when in fact, you know, a huge gift of travel is the way that it compels us into a more philosophical way of paying attention to life. Mm. I'm sure you had a lot of different ideas for books. I was wondering what made you choose this idea? What did you love about it? Why did you think it was important to tackle it? And in this way too, we can get to that after you can kind of explain to people how the book works, but. Yeah, well, I've been um, kind of obsessing about travel for a long time. I've not just been traveling, but I've been reading about travel and thinking about travel and having conversations about travel. And I've been keeping what they called in the Renaissance time, a commonplace book. And if you were Leonardo da Vinci or, or Thomas Jefferson, then, you know, you lived in a world that didn't have a lot of books weren't very common. So you would keep track of all your learning and your studies in your own notebooks. And so in addition to keeping a journal in your notebook, you would also transcribe quotes from books that, that captured your imagination. Well, I've been doing a digital version of that since the 1990s. I've been keeping track of quotes and, and different things that I've read and, and different thoughts that I've had. And so I, I just have... I. I had all of this travel wisdom, most of which was not my own, most of which is from this 3,000 years of humans recording their experiences of travel. Um, and I realized that I could sort of use this collection of travel wisdom to shed a, a, a light on this philosophical approach to travel. Um, and I didn't want to write a sequel to Vagabonding. You know, Vagabonding my first book is is will be 20 years old next year and it's people still love to talk about that book but i didn't want to write vagabonding too right you know i didn't want to do the electric boogaloo <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly are you a fan of the movie kicking and screaming 
I don't know if I've seen that. Okay. Anyway, that's a, that's a that's a quote from Kenneth Screaming, another classic Gen X movie. Oh, nice. uh, sorry, sorry for that aside. Look it up after this. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, as and actually as part of our morning readings, my wife and I we were reading Mary Oliver or Ross Gay or Thich Nhat Hanh or Thomas Merton. We were also reading Ryan Holiday's The Daily Stoic. Um, where each, basically it's a book with 366 chapters, one for each day of a leap year. And he would quote a a Stoic philosopher and then have a little reflection or meditation on that quote. And so it gave you a one-year framework to sort of meditate on uh, Stoic philosophy. It's a bestseller. It's an extraordinarily successful book. And I realized that there's really no travel equivalent and that I had (laughs) almost through obsession rather than mission. I didn't plan to write this book, but suddenly I realized that I had all of this travel wisdom I've been collecting. So I decided to sort of, um, for lack of a better word, do a travel version of the Daily Stoic, which is sort of like the Daily Vagabond or the Daily Traveler, where for every day of the year, I have a quote and a reflection on the quote, and it sort of mimics the arc of a journey over the course of a year. So January is about inspiration. February is about planning on through March is about getting started on a journey, whereas December is coming home. And so it sort of, I mean, readers can read this book at any pace they want, but it's sort of designed to be read a page a day and then sort of think about um, the concept that it's introduced on that day. Maybe Google some of the the writers, thinkers, artists, philosophers, um, and meditate on the arc, arc of that journey in such a way that you think about travel as a reader of this book in a philosophical way, in a way that travel touches each aspect of your life. And we, we travel um, not just to consume places, but to be in conversation with them and be in conversation with the people there and learn from places we travel to. Uh, and so that's, that's how the book came. I, I wrote it sort of in a, in a eight month frenzy um, as, as actually I, I, I asked my publisher to take a, a month off to do my honeymoon. <laughs> uh, and then I wrote the book, um, in, in a frenzy last year and it's coming out, uh, actually it'll be out by probably by the time this episode airs. And so it's, um, it's fun to see it. I actually got my hardcover books yesterday. I've, I've, I've written five books. Um, one of which has sold 300,000 copies. This is the first time I've been published in hardcover. So it's, uh, (laughs) I'm sort of having this childlike excitement at, at having my first hardcover book. Um, nice. It only takes five books and decades of work and you know three you know hundreds of thousands of copies sold to finally get the hardcover right. book. Right? I don't know. Jeez, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, Vagabonding was a trade pa- paperback. I'm I'm not going to it was it's been it's done well for me over the years, but finally the 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 publishing guys decided to give me a hardcover book all these years later and I I'm having childlike glee at the fact that I have a hardcover book now. I love it. Have not read through the whole thing, but I've obviously read through a lot of it and and caught in the vibe on on you know the the overall book as a whole and i got a bit sucked into it i must say i know you're only supposed to read one page a day you know for each calendar day of the year and for a leap year you have the extra day but yeah i i couldn't help myself <laughs> i went way past that awesome um, awesome yeah but there's there is a ton of wisdom in here so i was wondering if i could just kind of pull out some random days and ask you some questions. Yeah. And let's just kind of pull some quotes from these things. Let's, and by the way, I don't want to be a fundamentalist for people who get the book. I don't want to be a fundamentalist about the page a day thing. You can read it. Anybody can read it at their own pace, but it really is designed. It's pretty dense. Like if you try to read it in a couple sittings, it's, it's pretty dense. There's a lot to get through. And I think it's sort of designed to read and then think. So, um, so, so I love this exercise. I love, I love the idea of you reading something and, and then us talking about it. So. This is, 
this is an awesome book, man. I, I loved it. I mean, this is what, you know, a lot of the themes that we talk about here, but just so, so well done. And I just wanted to, yeah, pull some of these out. So we start cool. with January 1st. Okay. Yeah. You know, first day of the year. A little, a little snippet. In seeking to embrace unseen lands, you'll allow yourself to embrace unseen parts of yourself. So I was wondering if there are any unseen parts of yourself that you've discovered through your recent travels. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, uh, getting back to Norway, since that's where you are right now, I'm reminded of this often, but it's it's just the importance that family plays in one's life. And so, sort of seeing my wife's family hosting us in a place, I saw how important that is. I, I, I saw how important that those, those simple communal, um, close to home, walk through the woods events can be. Um, and so I think sometimes the unseen parts of yourself... Um, are parts that flicker in the in, in in the side of your vision again and again and again, and I think uh, one thing my Nor- Norway travels reminded me of is that part of myself that can be at peace in a place. I think sometimes as as travelers, we see the the world as this intoxicating menu of options, and sometimes it's easy to obsess with the menu with not realizing without appreciating to stretch the metaphor, the the deliciousness of each dish on that menu. It was not a completely unseen part of myself, but it's a part of myself I want to see more, which is the the self that can go slow and enjoy that walk in the wilderness and can find joy in finding a blueberry that I eat off the ground or a cloudberry. Um, what do they call cloudberries in, in Norway? Uh, uh, Molta. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so I think that that's not even that's not even just a before and after thing. Unseen parts of yourself that you can sort of get to know these lesser seen parts of yourself through certain rituals of travel, and going on a non itinerary driven journey through Norway with my wife's family reminded me of how how delightful it is to go slow and to not necessarily let goals shape your days. January 9th, skipping a little bit ahead, not too far. Travel allows you to try on new versions of yourself. Uh, again, I'm reading just one small snippet from from these days as these are, um, like you said, there's a lot to unpack with each one of these days. But uh, I was just wondering if this idea of trying new versions of yourself, uh, of course, you know, I think back to, you know, the 20s backpacking kind of days. We kind of had sort of similar, you know, the dirtbag backpacker thing. And, and uh, certainly... That was a, a part of it for me in some ways. I'm just wondering if that's still a part of your personal travels, your personal development, or in the past, if it was, what what way was that a part of, of your journey? Well, I'm an introvert. And actually, a lot of travelers are introverts, I've found. But travel sort of makes me come to terms with being an extrovert, because I can either be the the sullen guy who talks to nobody, or I can... I can dare myself to make conversation or join the village soccer game or just sort of get out of the shell of myself. And I think introverts are observant people. There's advantages to being an introvert, but sometimes um, you're a little bit less socially daring. And I think as a traveler, if you're not socially daring, then you're not going to be seeing the full potential of your travels. And so again and again, I meet the the extroverted part of myself when I travel Um and it's an important, I, I don't think I'll ever be an extrovert by nature, but so many times um, my travels have just become way more interesting by talking to people and approaching people and allowing myself to be approached. And so that's, that's really, that's a part of myself that I meet on the road that sometimes I'm an extrovert at home, but extrovert Rolf 
is uh, is a guy who exists more in, in distant lands, and he's a pretty good guy. I like I like uh, meeting him from time to time. <laughs> nice. You get on the road, you welcome him back. It's like it feels good. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> yeah. Buckle in, extrovert Rolf. Let's go. <laughs> Let's pause for a quick word from our sponsors. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now back to the show. March 22nd, travel thrives in a web of hospitality and mm. gratitude. And I'm just wondering if you could share a moment when somebody's kindness on the road made a difference in your life. Yeah. Well, it happens so often and, and oftentimes... Um, you get the strongest hospitality in the, in the poorest countries, you know, um, that, that oftentimes it's the people, the people who have time, uh, to show you kindness, uh, are the people who, whose days aren't structured by this, this mad modern, modern desire to make money or to rush from point A to point B. And so, gosh, I almost, almost without exception, um, uh, well, actually, there's hospitality everywhere. Um, but I, I wrote a book about uh, souvenirs, and and that sort of forced me to talk to souvenir vendors, for example. And 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 souvenir vendors are interesting because one, uh, I, Namibia is where I talk to a lot of souvenir vendors. And souvenir vendors, one, they um, they speak good English, and two, they meet a ton of tourists. But the tourists are all sort of a hassle because either the tourists don't want to talk to them or they want to haggle. And so it's rare that souvenir vendors are just approached by someone who just wants to talk to them about what, what they do. And so, um, have you been to Namibia? Have you been to the skeleton no, coast? Okay. Sure. Yeah, no, I was on the skeleton coast. It comes up several times in the new book just cause it, it really captured my imagination. Um, but I hung out with these souvenir vendors who, you know, have, have a fraction of my wealth and they sort of made me one of them for a day. I hung out with them and, and we shared food and they, it, it was interesting. This is something I need to realize 
when I'm a host at home, they sort of saw me as a gift to their day, just as I saw them as a gift to mine. And I've never really hung out and chatted with souvenir vendors. And actually, I quote one of them in the new book. I'm, I'm like, I was sort of trying to get to the bottom of like, you're sitting on a beach, you know, and you're selling souvenirs all day. And how do you be happy? How does that make you happy? It's, this is sort of unusual work. I was sort of trying to push him. I, I was sort of trying to get a quote for my souvenir book, but he's here like, this is not work. This is love. You know, this is the, I make money to give my, my daughters and my wife, you know, that this, to see this as work is to cheat it, to see it as love, you know, and I have these, this family that I think of every moment I'm here. And it just really humbled me, you know, that in making me one of them for a day, you might see souvenir vendors as these annoying people who chase you down on the beach and want to sell you a few things. But here's this guy who sort of understood life better than a lot of people do that, that like this isn't work is not an abstraction. Every time I sell one of these stones, I further my daughter's education. Um, and that, that really blew me away and made me realize how blessed I was to be hanging out with that, that Damara, uh, uh, ethnic Tamara guy who was sitting on a beach in, in Namibia and, 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 um, helping me see, um, good ways of, of being alive, of seeing work as a, as a form of love. Yeah. I, I love that. Well, I mean, is that, that's maybe one of the perks about kind of having a mission with some of your travels, I feel, or do you find that when you're, you know, in, in that case, you're, you're writing this book and you kind of like, you know, you want to make these connections because it's part of your book project, but also you're getting to make a connection it's kind of like the fifth ward thing, right? You're going somewhere for, for a reason that you maybe wouldn't have ended up there for, you know, just randomly. But uh, because of that, you get into these deeper conversations. I mean, do you find that uh, being a travel writer and having that as a part of uh, what you do? I mean, I know you're not, I don't know if you feel like you're always on or whatever when you're traveling, but do you find that that's, that's enhanced your, your travel experiences in some way? It certainly has. And, and what a delightful surprise it was to have that pretext to talk to souvenir vendors who I might not have talked about otherwise, because I think you, especially in your dirtbag years, you sort of avoid souvenir vendors because um, you don't have enough money to buy souvenirs or you've, you've already bought them. You're always shooing them away, you're, right? You're <laughs> always shooing them away. But I'm glad you brought up the Fifth Ward Houston thing, that, that in a way it's, it's, it's a chance to, to play games with your day and to go to places that you don't normally go to. Um, and I think if there's a flip side to that is that sometimes as a travel writer, you're sort of looking for the story of a place or you're looking for um, some sort of key to a place when sometimes it's just nice to to walk around. Again, going back to my Norway experience with my, with my wife's family is that it was delightful not to have a mission um, sometimes. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's delightful to sort of it's funny. I actually wrote down some of the places we went in Norway, so I wouldn't forget them because I think sometimes if you're making your itinerary through a place in the manner of a travel writer, you remember all the place names because you planned your itinerary. Where I was just being taken to places and loving them, um, but it wasn't until afterwards, like, oh, where were we? This is this is Konsvinger. Oh, okay, okay, we're near Ruros. Where are we? Where is this? Nutroy. Okay, the island of Nutroy. I have to remember that. And so that kind of travel is good too. I think that that the mission can take you into new directions and really force yourself to embrace parts of a place you might not have otherwise. But sometimes having no mission and just following your wife's cousins is a good, is a good way to go too. Or just sitting in the sunshine or just sitting in a cafe and watching the day go by. I, I teach classes in Paris, writing classes in Paris every summer. And sometimes my students get stressed out because the wait staff is so slow at Parisian restaurants. And what they come to realize is that that's more Parisian than any 
set of museums you go to in Paris, like the long, leisurely, savor-filled lunch is the experience of Paris, and no set of goals or missions can allow you to uh, experience Paris in that way. You just have to let go of time for a while and let lunch be lunch, uh, and that's as Parisian as anything you'll encounter there. Nice. Uh, did you did you set up this segue perfectly or what? Because on March 31st in the book, you say on the road, time spools out in a slower, richer way. And I just want to hear your philosophy around that. Yeah. Well, I think you could probably get a neurologist in here to talk about how travel, the experience of travel, actually your brain. That is a great episode idea, Rolf. Yeah, there you go. I, I, will, I will tune in and Let's... and take notes uh, if you if you do that episode. If you do it before Calling I do all it. neurologists. Right. <laughs> no, to travel. Well, novelty actually, um, the experience of novelty sort of allows your brain to experience time in a slower way, that novelty, the, uh, the novelty of an event like travel slows down time in a certain way. And I think Paul Theroux said, um, uh, travel is an experience where it feels like the hours you spend aren't deducted from your life, you know, that somehow you're embraced in a new way. And I think in the, in the chapter you quote, I, in the chapter you quoted, I quote Eddie L. Harris, um, who talks about how being in West Africa in a, in a place where, you know, the bus schedules aren't on the same rigid way that they are in a place like Norway, for example, then you just let time be what it is. The day starts when it starts and it ends when it ends. And if you're frustrated waiting for the next share taxi to the next town in West Africa, then you're being frustrated for something you can't control. And so that West, I just interviewed him for my own podcast. He lives in France now. And he says that that sort of changed his experience to time, even though Eddie lives in, in France now. He wakes up when he wakes up and he goes to day and his day ends when he goes to bed. And that he's sort of internalized that West African notion of time, which is probably not exclusive to West Africa, but the idea that you can't really control time. And so when you let time th flow through a day, you sort of experience it in, in a more um, in, in enlivened way. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we should all... Um, have late buses and, and undependable ferry schedules. But um, yeah, travel allows you... Actually, do I, do I quote Eddie Harris or do I quote uh, Jeff Greenwald in that chapter? I don't remember. I have the snippet, but I don't have the chapter in front okay. of me. Yeah. Jeff Greenwald also talks about this in the in the context of uh, Nepal. Um, yeah, okay. a, a similar observation, different part of the world, but just the yes, idea I think that, it was... Yeah. Yeah. I think it was that, that one. That, that, that in Nepal the day stretches its back like a cat cracking its spine, you know, that you just, that you, you can wander around and buy some postcards and go to a temple and have a coffee. And then it's noon and it feels like you've lived a week of experiences without any, having any goals, but you've just enjoyed a day in Kathmandu. And, um, so yeah, it's funny, I guess I returned to this time thing. I, I, I talk about time a lot in the book because time is something, you know, it's it's the essence of our lives, and if we don't see it as our as our truest form of wealth, then we're not going to enjoy that wealth. And and if we if we obsess about the inefficiencies of a of a place like Senegal or Nepal, then we're not going to experience time in the way that maybe time is to be enjoyed, not as a time where we're worried about a late bus, but a time where we're just paying attention to everything around us. I keep coming back to that word attention, but it's, it's really, it's a gift of travel and, and we get to occupy time instead of trying to manage it. Instead of trying to chop it into little chunks, we just get to let it blur from, from one moment into another. And by the end of the day, we've suddenly had this, this miracle of unexpected experience. Yeah. It is so much easier to do that on the road because I mean, my morning 
starts with, or actually the night before I look at my calendar, I'm like, okay, what, what do I have going on tomorrow? And then you just, you know, you're seeing a vertical column with time blocked out. And then you have these sort of spaces in between, which is almost the antithesis of that, right? So it's like battling against, you mentioned the word inefficiencies. Like, you know, we almost have to battle that mindset of like, uh, I got to be efficient today. I got to be productive today. And, you know, you're filling your time. And there is the reality of, you know, work. And I actually want to bring this up now because remote work, of course, now more than ever, people are taking their work with them. So this idea of, uh, I love how you said it, I mean, occupying time versus, I, I can't remember how exactly you phrased it, but we're, we're now taking those work schedules on the road with us. You know, and and now we're blocking out our time and now it's getting back to like the whole routine oriented thing or just doing it in Chiang Mai or whatever. Yeah, well, actually, you have a part in this on November 18th. I forgot I took this out. Travel first, then if you want, become a digital nomad. So that's one side of it. But then there's the reality of, okay, once you're... you. A lot of people get into this because they want to sustain their travels, right? They want to be like able to earn a living from the road and keep going but then you have this element of it. So yeah, I just would love to hear your thoughts on all that. There wasn't really a question there. It was just more of a rambling kind no. of, I think you get what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I've, I actually made a notation while you're talking because um, while you, you said the word schedule and you were talking about chopping your days up and part of my brain went to my schedule like, oh, oh, oh crap, what am I doing like, today? Wait a minute, are we, oh, am I keeping well, you long? I'm sorry, man. Well, and then, then all of a sudden I was paying less attention to this conversation. I was thinking, oh man, do I have something I need to do today? And it's like, that is an ingrained fear that we all have, right? And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't intend to do that, but you mentioned a schedule and I, I have a schedule too. And, and suddenly that fear instinct in my brain, I, 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 suddenly I was li listening a little less closely. And so I think this is what happens. Um, it's great that we can take our careers overseas in the, in the manner of digital nomads, which certainly barely existed when my book Vagabonding came out almost 20 years ago, but now is sort of pretty normal for young people. The idea that you can go overseas and do the job that you would be doing at home in a remote way from a place that's cheaper and more lovely than it would be back home. You go to, to Yucatan or, or to um, Estonia or someplace like that. But like, as you suggest, the danger is, is that you take your workaholic tendencies with you. Um, well, there's a couple of dangers. One is that instead of traveling first, and I gently encourage people in the Vagabond's way to do this, is why just go to Yucatan to be a digital nomad if you haven't really traveled in Yucatan yet? Why don't you travel the world, fall in love with the place and be a digital nomad there. You know, I think digital nomadism has become so standardized now that you can go to a compound in Bali or in Tbilisi, Georgia, where there's good, there's good Wi-Fi and there's other digital nomads there. And you're sort of in this community that could be California or it could be Birmingham, England, or it could be Tel Aviv, Israel, but it's on the other side of the world. Like quite by accident, I wrote vagabonding in a town called Renong, Thailand, that I just sort of stumbled into years and years ago. To this day, it's probably not a digital nomad hub, but that's a good thing because I think one danger of going to a place just to be a digital nomad is one, you'll take your workaholic 60-hour workweek tendencies with you to this awesome place that you should be experiencing. And two, because you're seeing it through the lens of the digital nomad community, you're not really interacting with the community where it is. You're you're not negotiating for your apartment with someone um, who lives there and learning some phrases of the local language that you're sort of in this bubble of people who are doing the exact same thing as you. So I don't want to do knock digital nomadism because it's a great 
aspect of 21st century life, but I do encourage people to travel first, fall in love with the place, then be a digital nomad. And two, realize that um, you can leave your workaholism home at the same time. You don't have to be in front of your laptop the whole time you're in this beautiful place. You can go swimming or go walk, go for walks in the forest or go to the market and try some of that new phrase of language uh, to negotiate for things. So um, yeah, digital nomadism is only a great thing if you allow it to be a travel experience as opposed to a remote office experience where you never really rest and you're always worried about that schedule. I mean, it's so individualistic too, right? Because there's, you know, the person, there might be the person that's so passionate about, you know, like when you were writing Vagabonding, I'm sure you were very excited about the book and the idea and you were just like in it, right? I'm sure you weren't regretting the times you were writing because you were creating something and getting joy out of it, right? Of course, writing might be a different exercise than say somebody who's an administrative assistant and they're having to answer emails and, you know, be working nine to five, but in this beautiful place. But at a certain point, I think if you're living the nomad life or you're, you know, you're working remotely and you want to work for six months abroad or whatever, uh, you know, on the other hand, you, you're not having, it's almost like two separate things, right? You're like, okay, now I, I work and I'm just doing it from here as opposed to like, I'm trying to squeeze this travel experience in. Like, I feel like there's, there could be a bit of struggle there, or you could just kind of delineate what those are. Uh, what those two experiences are in some ways. I don't know. There's no right answer. I think what's right is right for everybody. But I agree with you. I think what you're saying is, hey, maybe maybe it's just having an awareness around what the intention is here. You know, I, I think that's all you can do. I, I don't think there's any silver bullet that that you know makes you a, a perfect digital nomad. And I think, and sometimes you know, we perform perfect seeming versions of digital nomad life on our social media feeds, you know, um, again, to, to, to stoke envy or to reassure ourselves that we're really doing something when in fact, um, none of us are perfect at it. And the, there will be stressful days overseas. And there will be times when after a week of work, you'll realize that you haven't been to the market, that you haven't, that you're in a country where the, the, the native language is Spanish and you haven't spoken Spanish in conversational way in a week, uh, because you've been working so hard. And as an aside, one reason why I wrote, um, vagabonding in Renong, Thailand, as opposed to like Chiang Mai or some other more fashionable place is that I was afraid that if I went to a place with either a lot of travelers or a lot of super cool things to do, I wouldn't get my book done. So Renong is sort of a provincial place. Um, it's a little frumpier. I ended up loving Renong. Um, it was on the border with Myanmar. Um, and so I got to go to Myanmar every month to renew my visa. But um, I sort of tricked myself into not having too much fun with my other travelers by going to a sort of a provincial capital that was not as sexy. But it, it's made my experience more Thai, you know, that that I could have been in an expatriate bubble in Chiang Mai or on Koh Phangan or someplace like that, where I was having the time of my life and making a lot of friends from around the world, but not getting my book done and not really being in Thailand. So um, yeah, so in, in a way, that decision to find a frumpy Thai town gave me an experience of Thailand that was itself a gift of that. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't intend to do that become, to become more Thai. It was almost an accident and nobody ever is perfect in this digital nomad way. Um, but that's another good thing to keep in mind that it doesn't have to be the most fashionable part of the world where you live. Uh, it's just a place where it's a little cheaper. The weather's a little nicer than it would be back home. You can still do your work and you can have a taste of the world that you wouldn't have back home. 
the mayor just called. He's like, did they, did you just call our city frumpy? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Renong, but you're not, a, you're not a sexy town. You're a little estuary border town, but um, it's a cool place. It's worth visiting. <laughs> I, I agree with you that the sentiment from that uh, particular entry that uh, I'm, I'm looking for it now. I can't remember the exact headline, but the, the idea that, yeah, travel first, then if you want, become a digital nomad. And, Okay, so then I, I think about this and I wonder, okay, is this just Gen X, Jason, kind of romanticizing my pre-internet travel days and, you know, where I, you know, maybe once or twice a week, I'd spend 10 minutes in an internet cafe and then I would just get out of there as soon as possible once I sent like three emails to my family and said, I'm still alive. All right, see ya. Back in the world now. And yet, I got so much out of just being in the travel experience without the other obligations. Again, I'm speaking from the, you know, this, all this caveats, all these conversations, I think everybody knows, you know, coming from a place of, of privilege and all that and having the ability to do that. But, you know, having saved up money and just gone and not had the additional responsibilities, which is kind of the sentiment you're saying here, right? Like just kind of put yourself out into the world and, and not bring the work along thing for a period of time. This is kind of leading to the question of, I guess, I guess thoughts on that. And also what is your relationship with technology when you're out on the road? Well, you bring up a good point. Uh, speaking of Gen X, Jason, Rolf is a Gen X guy too. And I think yeah. that there, there's a compulsion as we age to judge younger generations through the lens of how things were when we were that age. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to be the only, yeah, we didn't have social media. We were, <laughs> right. we were, you know. Exactly. No, and, and, and since my first book, Vagabonding, was sort of a letter to my 17-year-old self saying, give yourself permission, this is okay. I didn't want to be the finger-wagging aging guy because you know, I grew up around these baby boomers who had traveled before us and God bless the baby boomers, but there was some self-righteousness among this. We didn't have phone cards. We didn't have this dial-up internet, this newfangled thing. You couldn't use a credit card on the other side of the world. Um, it's I, I got some sort of condescending travel advice from boomers when I was young, and I did not want to be the Gen X guy who gave younger generations sort of a, a hoity-toity, um, it was better in my day attitude. But there, there's a whole week of chapters in the new book, which is about this, this tortured relationship with technology that we really have to acknowledge right now. Because one of the things I talk about is there's this woman named Lydia O'Sullivan who was reported missing in Fiji um, at, right at the beginning of the pandemic, right before the pandemic. And there was like a the London or the British police and the Fijian police had had joined forces to find her. Well, Actually, she wasn't missing. She just went to an eco-retreat and their internet went out for five days. And her and her family thought she said, this would be ridiculous by Gen X and baby boober standards. But this poor young woman who was fine, who was having the time of her life, her parents thought she was in danger because she hadn't replied to anything, uh, to any emails or messages for five days because you know, she was in the jungle in Fiji. Their internet went because out. Because she was enjoying life. <laughs> right, because she was enjoying <laughs> life. And so that's an example I use in the new book about how we really have to not just give ourselves permission to let go of technology sometimes, but tell our friends and family, look, say like sort of virtually pat them on the head and say, look, I'll be okay. You're going to hear from me less for the next week or month or year, but I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to 
send you some postcards and send you some text messages, but I want to give myself permission to live in a different way. Because sometimes we, we now live in an age where we can go, we can be on the other side of the world, but we're still sort of texting the same friends we would be back home. We're st- our, our media diet, our social media diet is the same as it was back home. And in fact, it used to be you would pick up the the, the Hindustan Times when you're in India, you would pick up the, the Bangkok Post in Thailand. Well, now you can just get on your phone and read the same newspapers or, or news outlets you would back home. And so, well, I don't want to be the, the angry get off my lawn traveler who's talking about how, how greater it was long ago. I think it's important for everybody for, of all generations to find a balance between the technology, especially the smartphone and the place where you are. Because if you see, actually, another thing I quote in in the book is how around 1999, there were these new virtual reality technologies and they were saying, you can, you can travel the world without leaving your home. Well, now you can, you can travel the world and not leave your home. You can be doing the same insipid routines that you would do back home, you know, basically you're looking at your phone in your guest house instead of walking the streets and having an interesting life. So there's a whole week of chapters dedicated to gently encouraging people to find a balance with their technology uh, on the road. And, and this is not new. Um, when JP Morgan, he was one of the first people who installed a telegraph machine on a railroad train. This was in Egypt in 1912. And, and the people who traveled with him were like, this dude spends all his time sending telegraphs and keeping track of his stock values. You know, he's barely in, in Egypt. This was so he was like one of the first people to lose himself in in uh, in globally connected technology. Um, and so it's not just whatever Gen Z or millennials who have this tortured relationship with technology. J.P. Morgan did the same thing, but we need to be aware that this is something that's a thing, and we need to humbly find ways to sort of let go of technology and be where we are. And really, again, there's that word attention, pay attention to where we are, not through the black mirror that is our phone, but through the grand tapestry that is the world and just let go of that electronic umbilical cord and see the world as it is, if it's possible. And again, no silver bullet, none of us are perfect, but it's doable. You you can free yourself of your phone for hours, if not days at a time. Mm. It's becoming so difficult, though. Like literally, just logistically, because uh, like some months ago, I went into the city. So like, I'm not bringing my phone, and then I got on the Taybana, and my wife's like, "Oh, they might do a check." And and of course, you have your Taybana, like your sorry, your subway ticket on your phone. Mm-hmm, and I'm like, mm-hmm. "Oh, I don't have my subway ticket, and it's all digital now." Like, no, <laughs> why well, is everything <laughs> on the smartphone now? It's just like maddening. Yeah, no, it's it's um. It's made life so much more convenient. It's made it's made travel more accessible, but it's also made travel less travel in a certain sense. Um, and I and it's you know I, I remember years ago I I wrote some sort of column saying the same thing I'm saying now, like let go of technology, don't be dependent on your smartphone. And like the next day, I was in a hotel in North Carolina. I just given a talk about travel at a university there, and I wanted to know what the weather was like. And instead of walking twenty paces out of the lobby, I looked at the weather app on my phone. And it's like it's one of those Homer Simpson this morning moments where it's just like, Rolf, why didn't you just walk outside and see if the sun was out instead of looking at this app on your phone? You literally just talked about this in the last. You've written about this, and so it's it's not easy. And actually, the phone is designed to be smarter than us. All those apps are al- algorithmically. Um, very wily in that they 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 know how to harvest our attention, uh, and so yeah, as you said, now tickets, plane tickets, all sorts of things are on our phones, and 
it's going to be trickier. Actually, some, someone needs to invent a smartphone app that keeps us independent of our smartphone app that somehow <laughs> manages every all those things in the background while allowing us to not look at our phone all the time. Um, because there are apps like that, I think that make they block you from the internet. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think no. one's called Freedom or something. Yeah, that's inappropriate. I've, I've got that before. I'm I'm so bad this way that I bought Freedom years ago. I haven't used it in a while. But yeah, no, like when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to think, oh yeah, I'm glad I I looked at my phone eight hours a day. You're going to think. I'm glad I paid attention to life. I'm glad I traveled the world and allowed myself to travel the world and not have the same, these same habits. So it's, it's really worth thinking about because, um, you're only halfway in the world when you're navigating everything through your phone. And we all should recognize that this is a temptation. It's an algorithmically induced addiction and we should find ways to put our phones down because human culture has flourished for thousands of years without that algorithm and without that phone and we too can partake of it yeah i guess we could uh, maybe yeah take a pause and ask yourself hey is there a human app here for example holding your hand outside to see if it's raining that's, a, <laughs> right, that's the right. human app <laughs> all right let me close the app let me bring my arm back in through the window you uh, an app that says hey jackass just go outside you know <laughs> yeah, it just yells at you berates you exactly I, I know you have a date with your wife on the porch for for reading time so i don't want to keep you too much longer but just like I promise two more things and then maybe we can do a part two some other time because sure. I just feel like we still have way more to unpack. But yeah. I'm curious, what culture do you feel most at home in and why? And if it's your home country, that's okay. But if it is, I'm going to ask the follow-up of a country outside of your home country. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll save you the follow-up because there's a couple. One is the U.S. And um, I um, am fond of the U.S. My, my first... Uh, Vagabonding trip was eight months around the U.S. and Canada, um, and to this day, I really enjoy even sort of wandering through the back roads of Kansas. It, I, I really enjoy it, and I um, I don't want to fetishize international travel at the expense of of one's own home country because I've had so many rewarding travels here, and I look forward to so many more rewarding travels. I've never been to Alaska, you know, so I, I want to road trip in that area. There's just all these places I still want to go. Um, but by that same token, um, I think a place that I really is really close to my heart is Korea. And I don't know that I necessarily feel at home in Korea because Korea is so, I guess, non-diverse. You're either Korean or you aren't, right? You know, Koreans um, have a very Korean way of seeing the world. But I traveled there when I was so young and I, and I was so vulnerable and open-hearted to that place that speaking of my wife to this day, um, when I'm in a bad mood, she'll, she'll cook me Korean food because it's my comfort food, you know, that, uh, it's such, it's so baked into my open hearted way of being in another place that I'm, I'm just very fond of it. And I look forward, it's been ages since I've been to Korea, but you know, the smells and the sights and even the language, which I'm not very good at, but I can read the signs. Um, it just reminds me of a part of myself, uh, that I like and that I miss. And so, yeah, I, I look forward to taking my wife there for the first time. You know, she's much more experienced as a Europe traveler than I am. I'm much more experienced in Asia. She's never been to Asia. So uh, one joy I look forward to showing her is sort of my home that is Korea. And I'm not even remotely Korean, but there are parts of Korea that are very special to me that I would like to be the person to show her those places and to sort of have that affinity and connection to that place where I'm not, I don't necessarily feel at home, but yeah, in a certain way, I, I feel a part of myself there that I don't feel any other part of the world. 
isn't that one of the great joys of life to just be able to share something you love with somebody you love, right? Like even if even if they're not super keen on it or whatever, it's just like okay, it's just nice to be able to to have that. I remember when I you know met my wife and I'm the first time she was coming to Colorado to visit me where I was living at the time and I love Colorado and I always you know we've been doing the long distance thing and I was like it's gonna be so nice to have her here in Colorado I can show her you know, the Rocky mountains and do the mm. things. And it's just, uh, it's a joy. It, it is. And as you were talking, I was thinking about my parents, my parents who did not have passports when I was young, I took them to Korea and then later to China, Mongolia, and later to Paris and Prague. And they were such good travelers. And you know what? We stayed in youth hostels. They're in their sixties at the time. We stayed at Xiaolong youth hostel in Beijing. We stayed at the check-in in Prague and they, it was so it was so delightful to show them this sort of dirtbag side of my travel life and just to sort of see them awaken, to sort of see them just sort of engaging the young people in conversation and, and being fearless. They're both Kansas teachers and they're used to interacting with young people. So they weren't, they weren't intimidated by being the oldest people in the youth hostel. They just enjoyed it. And so, yeah, showing my wife Korea, showing my parents youth hostels, um, has been fun. Yeah. Showing your wife, Colorado, my wife has have had a family cabin in Colorado that's uh, several generations old. And so I get to see Colorado through the love that is in her eyes when she goes there. So it's a, it's a multipolar experience and it's, it's part of the fun of, of what makes travel what it is. In my opinion, it's totally cool to be the old people in the hostel, right? I mean, maybe the young people will disagree with me. <laughs> Why is this old guy snoring? Under my bunk, but I don't know. I think it's, I think it's great. Uh, I, I I love that it's open for everybody. Should be that way. In terms of how you you know travel is in the in the verb sense of you know transporting your physical body from one place to another. Of course, how we choose to do it affects our travel experience, right? I mean, some of the things you've done: walking across Israel, biking across Myanmar, hitchhiking Eastern Europe, foot, bike, car backpacking, trains, planes. I'm just wondering if you have a preference for a specific one. That's a good question because um, I think at different times I've had different interests and fascinations. You know, I went through a bicycle phase and that's a great thing to have. Like you can rent bike ch bikes cheap everywhere and then suddenly you are interacting with the place in a new way. And I did walk across Israel. I think I, I'm coming full circle to walking because my wife is such a better walker than me. Like she, she walked from, from, uh, Venice to Munich once, you know, she's, she does long, long haul walking. It's sort of an instinct for her. It's sort of a part of her happiness. And even though I've been walking my whole life, I am rediscovering that now. And I really look forward to like, she's not been to Japan before. I haven't spent a lot of time there, maybe doing the Shikoku trail pilgrimage with her, or maybe she, one thing is that she went to drama. She's an actor. She went to drama school in England. And there's a lot of, England has a great walking culture. And I'd like to, to hike through Cornwall. I'd like to hike through, you know, the Lake District. I'd like to walk through Scotland and Wales with my wife, who will help me understand the, that as a conveyance. And I think there's, there's just something very simple and elemental about walking that brings me back to myself. I did a lot of hiking when I was a late teenager in my early twenties. I became more of a more of a vagabonder, but um, I think it's something that can dovetail with travel in an interesting way. And you know, during the pandemic, one thing that my wife and I did when we couldn't travel to the other part of the world is we walked to a town called Little Sweden, 
Lindsburg, Kansas here. It's 22 miles away. We just walked out the back door and walked all day and sort of saw the landscape beyond our home in a way that we had not been paying attention to when we drove through it. So I don't know if I have a walking book in my future, but I'm, I don't know that I don't have one either. I, I'm, I'm really fixating on walking right now. And it's really, um, really been a part of my travel happiness of, of, of late. I'm with you, man. I, I, I love walking. There's a pilgrimage trail here actually in, in Norway called St. Olaf's Ways. There's a various trails that run to Trondheim in the north. And, you know, there's one that starts in Oslo that runs there. And I, I went to the, the pilgrimage center a few weeks ago to talk to them and get a, like a book and some maps and stuff because I really want to do it one day. I'm like, okay, you know, if I just kind of get out there and walk one day on it, it's kind of like saying to myself that I'm going to continue on. So it's, it's just a great way to take everything in and you don't have to be in a rush to, to see. It's just, yeah, it's just relaxing, man. I got to interview Arlen Kaga. He's a Norwegian. He was in, you mentioned him in your book. Yeah, I quote him. Yeah, he's just a great dude. And he spent over 50 days walking by himself with no communication. So I, I just had to know what that was like. Hmm. So there's all these uh, interesting experiences around walking. I, I wanted to hear more about your walking adventures, but we'll have to save it for another time. Come back to Norway so we can do this in person, please. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> no, no, actually, I just wrote, I made a notation, St. Olaf's Trail. Now I want to do that. So, Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the links. Just on the craft of writing, and I'd love to go to one of your workshops sometime. I know you have the workshops. We'll, we'll link to all the stuff in the show notes cool. uh, so everybody can find everything that we mentioned. But whether you want to be a travel writer, you just enjoy journaling or... I mean, everybody sends emails, like writing's kind of built into everybody's life. I'm just wondering what the top like one or two takeaways are from your workshops after working with so many students over so many years. I guess I'm just looking for a little bit of guidance, whether it's a practice that we should develop or just a tip or yeah, anything like that. Well, I think um, re remember your audience. Um, this is not uh, this is not new advice. A lot of writing teachers teach it, but I think sometimes as travelers, we think because our travels are interesting to us, they will be interesting to everybody. And so, storycraft is a big part of writing on the page. You know, you have to find the essence. What is the conflict? What is the the arc? What is the change that transforms in the narrator during this essay? And that can be hard to find sometimes, you know, that basically in, you, you're finding the story within your life experience and sort of whittling down your memories to the size of the, of the story that should be told. This year, the comedian Ari Shafir was in my uh, travel writing class. And the stories he tells on stage are different because he can use facial expressions or long pauses to convey certain types of drama and information, whereas on the page, he can't do that. And so really, and this is why we, in writing classes, we have workshops where the author can't speak and we sort of discuss the author's work in the manner of a, of a book club, because it basically shows what they are conveying on the page. And if people are confused, well, it's because you haven't given them enough information. If they, if they don't feel the emotion you're trying to convey, then you should think about ways to create that emotional arc within the story. So I think a lot of what it focuses is in on is remembering the idea of the audience, remembering yourself as an audience. If you, if you read a travel book, that's your favorite travel book, reread it as a writer and think, what were the choices? Why is this page? Why is this page almost make me cry? What, what are they doing with this information? And again, speaking of silver bullets, there's, I don't offer my students a silver bullet, but it's a process, um, in making everybody aware of story craft it allows us to hone story craft on the page. It allows us to 
take better notes as travelers. It allows us to pay attention for those stories and those details that will make a difference. Just finding the story in our life experience and telling it in a way that other people are engaged and feel what you felt when you had that experience. Hmm. Thank you for that. It must be a thrill to teach in writing in Paris, right? Very famous place for writers to congregate and philosophize and do the writing thing. It, it really <laughs> is. And it's good marketing too. Like if I, yeah, I, I love Kansas, right. but people don't really go want to pay good money to go to the, to, to the Great the Plains. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, at the very least, I like to think that I, I deliver good classes, but at the very least they're in one of the most beautiful cities in the world and they right. are flaneuring through the town and, and eating great food and, and, um, you know, breathing in a great place at a great time of year. Um, yeah. So it's uh it's not hardship duty. It's a, it's a delightful thing to do every summer. Kansas doesn't have that je ne sais quoi. Is that, is that, would that be the right usage of that? <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I'm very fond of Kansas, but it's nice to leave no, Kansas, I like Kansas and go to Paris yeah. sometimes too. I remember hiking through the prairies of Kansas and it was gorgeous. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous. Lovely place. We've covered a lot. Thank you, man. I'm going to throw out one more thing. You know, if you can just do a writing workshop in Norway, I'm going to, you know, maybe I'm seeing a cabin, some mountain views, you know, a nice sort of Norwegian setting, some hammocks. Right, right. No, I'm, I'm sold. I'm sold. Could be a thing. Well, I, I already have, a, now I have, I married into a family connection with Norway. So uh, let's keep thinking <laughs> about go. this. Let's keep thinking about this. <laughs> cool, man. I will, of course, link to everything we mentioned in the show notes, the new book, The Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust, Discovery, and the Art of Travel. Of course, you have your Deviate podcast, outstanding stuff. Love the book. And yeah, anything else you want to share here just to... Uh, feel free. No, well, let's have another conversation. I've, in, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast over the years too. And um, I think you can appreciate travel in the same spirit as me. So it's been fun to, fun to chat with you today, Jason. It was wonderful. Thanks for your time and enjoy your reading date now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can see the, the beauty of Kansas from my deck. So very soon I will be uh, enjoying the Kansas beauty of which you speak. Speaking of getting off technology and getting out there, we'll let you do that. Thank you again so much. Heck yeah. have it my chat with rolf potts thank you so much to rolf for taking his time to stop on the show congrats on the new book which i absolutely love and i will share a quote from the book to wrap up this episode you can really turn to any page on this book and find a thoughtful observation insight perspective idea and that's why i think he has meditations in the title there's really a lot to meditate on here and a lot to meditate on in our own lives when it comes to travel. I think this book offers us an opportunity to reflect, of course, on our own travels and looking forward, perhaps a chance to dissect what our intentions may be for our future travels and trips, pondering how some of the philosophical sides of, of travel and our personalities may fit together or blend together with a itinerary or a trip plan. There are a lot of different ways to look at this, keeping this vague intentionally because the themes are all here. You have to just kind of put them together in your own head and create what you will from them in your future travels. And I think that's where the art of travel may come in. This idea of how you approach it, how you think about it, 
affecting how you plan and your real world decisions, how that all blends together, how you sort of co-create your travel experience from your inner experience and your interactions with the outer world. Fascinating stuff and a lot to think about coming out of this, at least for me. So I hope you enjoyed it. Now, you've heard me say it on the show time and again. Hey, if you come through Norway, hit me up. Well, guess what? People do, and I get to meet up with them sometimes, which is always a joy to meet up with some listeners of the show. I got to do that last week with Danny, and I wasn't planning on recording everything. just wanted to meet up and hang out, get to hear about their experience traveling, what their experience has been in Norway, and just have a coffee and talk travel. Of course, one of my favorite things to do, (laughs) as you all know. And Danny started sharing his biggest takeaway from a year and a half of nomad life. And I thought, wait, hold on a second. Not really prepared for this, but took out the smartphone and recorded it because I wanted to share it with you. Now, forgive the audio quality. Like I said, this wasn't a planned. It was just an off-the-cuff thing. So you're going to hear the sounds of the cafe and you're going to hear the steam coming out of the you know, the coffee machine and all that stuff, which I think can add some nice ambiance to a clip. And it's just a short clip, but I thought this was a valuable lesson and I wanted to share it with you. So here is me and a fellow podcast listener sharing a little bit of uh, travel wisdom for you today. Sitting here with Danny, coffee shop in Oslo, right? Always asking people to meet up and get in touch and uh, come to town. So we have two pumpkin spice lattes in front of us that we just finished. And I, I just thought, well, maybe we'll record this and, and put your uh, biggest takeaway because you just said you had your biggest takeaway from your nomad life so far. So I said, hold on, we got to record this. So. Yeah, you actually made it work. And uh, I would say there's a bunch of takeaways. One that I wasn't expecting to actually get was if there's a place you really want to go to, there's going to be folks who try to like give you reasons not to, and sometimes really valid reasons. Like, Norway is expensive. Yeah. It's not just an empty warning. But some of the coolest places we've been to, Norway, Switzerland, if they're expensive or if there's something there that would be limiting, just find a way to make it work. Maybe it's cooking at home more, um, pet sitting, whatever it is. Just if there's a will, there's a way, essentially. And there's way too many cool places to check out that might fall into that category. And so I think I'm not just picking places based on accessibility as much. But maybe it is like going out for that beer one less time or like fewer times. Maybe it is less eating out. Whatever that thing is, they need to adjust for the place where you are. Um, I think once you actually get there, you can figure out ways to make it more affordable. You can figure out ways to make it more accessible. And so don't let the thing that you think is, like you said, a limiting belief or the determining factor, if it's cost, if it's location, whatever it is, just commit to doing it and then figure out the details along the way. Because people live there. People live in Oslo. People live in Switzerland. They live in these places. They find a way to make it work. So if you're passing through for a week, I think you can find a way to make it work as well. So that's yeah. my takeaway. That's great advice, man. I think, uh, yeah, don't don't reprioritize your bucket list or whatever your travel list just yeah. because of price or some other limiting belief that you might have. You guys are making it work by 
house sitting here, right? It was one way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the house sitting's been super helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of those types of opportunities. Once you actually throw yourself into the, like you commit to going to it, you commit to traveling, you commit to whatever it is. Once you actually throw yourself there, there's all these weird opportunities that start to somehow present themselves to make it work for you. And it could just be serendipity. Um, you could be offered to look after a bunch of dogs and like foster, help a foster home or something. And you may not even know that was there until you just showed up and met somebody or whatever the situation may be, so. Nice, love it. How long have you been nomadic now? A year and a half. There you go. Thanks for that. Cool. <laughs> There you have it. Thanks, Danny. And thanks for taking the time to meet up. If you ever want to get in touch, Jason at ZeroToTravel.com is my email. I have a voicemail box where you can easily leave a message, leave the link for that in all of the show notes. And if you come through town, hit me up. Maybe we'll be able to grab a coffee and you can share a bit of your wisdom as well here on the podcast. Always looking for listener stories, advice, tips. So anything you send me may go out to the listening audience. So feel free, please, to get in touch anytime. Now, to wrap this up, I will share a quote from Rolf's book. This one came from August 30th, headline, Pause to Savor the Best Moments of the Journey. And here he says, Part of the task of savoring the best moments of travel comes in shifting one's experiential focus. At home, we find satisfaction in achieving work and personal goals, but travel offers a unique opportunity to trade achievement for appreciation to slow down and relish rapturous moments by embracing them with our whole being. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 